Hello, and welcome to the Contours podcast by the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. This is your host, Carolyn Warman, and today we'll be discussing the Syrian conflict. Contours has had a lot of episodes discussing the Syrian civil war, including episodes on cross-border aid in Syria, the Captagon trade, and also this last episode with one of today's guests, Calvin Wilder, on the Turkish-Kurdish conflict. Today, we'll be looking at the Syrian conflict from a new angle, which is how the Euphrates River and the Tigris River affect the conflict and how it plays out on the ground. Before we begin, a little bit about our guests. Zoe Robin is currently a non-resident fellow at New Lines, researching the nexus of water and diplomacy. Previously, she was a Fulbright Research Fellow in Jordan, where she focused on climate change, migration, and public policy. She has written for Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, and New Lines Magazine, among other outlets. She also co-leads the Diplomacy Working Group of Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Network and is a Senior Fellow with Humanity in Action. Also joining us is Calvin Wilder. Calvin is an analyst at New Lines with a focus on non-state actors in the Middle East and Central Asia. Prior to joining the Institute, Calvin was a research assistant at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy in the Chicago Project for Security and Threats. He was also a Boren Scholar in Amman, Jordan from 2019 to 2020, where he worked as a research and translation intern at Syria Direct. Zoe and Calvin, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start off our conversation and mention the fantastic piece that has just come out right before this podcast that you both co-authored, and this piece titled Dwindling Freshwater Compounds, Syrian Crises kind of lays the framework for it with the discussion we're having. So with that, I'd like to start with Zoe and have you walk me through how the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers supply the region with water and how this water impacts food security and agricultural production in Syria. Well, thanks, Carolyn, for having us on the podcast today. To answer your question, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are hugely important today as they've always been throughout human history. And to, you know, throw it back to your high school social studies class, these rivers supported what may have been the world's oldest civilization in the Fertile Crescent. Both the Tigris and the Euphrates originate in the mountains of southeastern Turkey from snow, lakes, and rain. And after that, the two rivers diverge and they run through Syria and Iraq before they then flow into the Persian Gulf. Um, in terms of contributions, Turkey is the biggest contributor and it provides about 90% of water to the Euphrates and about 40% of water to the Tigris. Iraq, Syria, and Iran also make contributions to the overall flow. But the Tigris-Euphrates River Basin is shared between Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, with Syria and Iraq being the two countries that are really most dependent on water from the river basin for their food security. And these rivers sustain you know, diverse ecosystems, and they're also really important to the regional economy. They support agriculture, hydropower, and a number of other industries. For most of its history, this river basin was largely unregulated, but starting in the 1960s, states started to build more dams and irrigation systems, which sort of comes with development. Flooding has always been an issue along this river basin, and so a lot of these projects started out in the 60s with the idea of regulating this flooding. And then hydropower also started developing into a larger focus of these different national projects, especially for Turkey, which has built a number of really successful hydroelectric dams. And today it meets around 30 percent of its electricity generating capacity through hydropower. As more dams were built in the 70s, the riparian countries each started pursuing different development agendas, 
that all drew on these water resources. In Syria and Iraq, these projects really focused on agriculture development and irrigation projects. In Turkey, the government also launched its Southeast Anatolia project in the 70s, and this created a lot of dams to prevent floods, provide for more power, irrigation, and drinking water. So you've spent the last part of your answer talking about how all of these countries have been using development projects, such as in Turkey's case, to generate electricity. They've used these development projects for regulation. Has water diplomacy been happening here? It sounds like this is a limited water supply. So how has the process been going for all of these countries to work together cohesively? Can we even call it cohesive? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So in isolation, none of the development projects that I mentioned are particularly detrimental. But the fact that there was no coordination and these projects were also happening at the same time simultaneously led to an increase in tensions. And you can see this all around in Turkish-Iraqi relations, Turkish-Syrian relations, and Syrian-Iraqi relations, where conflict over the Euphrates almost led to armed conflict at one point. And so since then, water officials in these three countries have been engaging in, I guess you could call it on-again, off-again diplomacy in a sense. But tensions continued to increase because Turkey continued building its dams and Iraq and Syria continued with their irrigation projects. To give you the big picture and sort of bring it up to today, cooperation increased slightly during the early 2000s, but it really stopped following the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, which strained relations between Turkey and Syria. I think Calvin can speak to the larger political context in more detail, but the main point is that today there are still no basin-wide agreements for managing and monitoring these transboundary waters, which should really scare us all considering the millions of people who rely on these waters for food, power, and for their livelihoods. Of course. And how has climate change affected the water supply? And are we seeing these ramifications in the daily life for the people that depend on this water? Yeah, so according to the UN, the Euphrates and Tigris River Basin is highly, highly vulnerable to climate change. And so these diplomatic efforts to coordinate water access along the river basin are going to become even more important in an age when we have climate change. Some communities along the basin are going to experience reduced precipitation and higher temperatures, while others might experience unpredictable flooding. But I, I think the real concern along the Tigris-Euphrates is lack of rain, lack of water. So as I mentioned before, the Tigris-Euphrates has a lot of dams that help regulate its flow. But to date, there's no strong coordination mechanism. And that lack of coordination has fed certain accusations that different countries are acting in a political manner in the way that they're controlling water. But my point here is that as climate change gets worse and worse, this lack of a strong coordination mechanism is going to be felt even more acutely. And we're going to see a ratcheting up of tensions as countries jockey to ensure that their people have enough water for food, power, and everything else. The basin is already suffering from climate change. And we're seeing increases in salinity, land degradation, and its marshlands and a number of ecosystems are in a real state of decline. So, at this stage, the majority has been caused by human activity, whether that's through the construction of dams or the overexploitation of resources or just development projects that we discussed. But scientists project that climate change will get a lot worse. I mean, in uh, 2006 to 2010, we saw Syria's most severe drought in about 100 years, which no doubt contributed to mass migration, maltrition, and increases in poverty. 
So increases in temperature will definitely make droughts like these more common. And these effects of climate change are running in parallel with a changing political environment in the region. And so these concurrent trends are actually a lot of the things that motivated both Calvin and I to start writing these recommendations. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, what is the role that the international community, specifically international donors, can play here? How can they help people get water along the Tigris and the Euphrates? And what challenges currently stand in the way to this in your eyes? Yeah, so in the piece, we argue that international donors can make the most impactful investments by helping the two countries that are most dependent on these waters. And those, of course, are Syria and Iraq. One caveat here is that all projects should account for climate change from the outset. So that means taking into account reductions in precipitation and reductions in rainfall and river flow. For example, the Red Cross and the Syrian Arab Red Crescent have made really smart investments here, and they've partnered to repair water pumps in conflict-affected areas, which is providing millions of people with access to water. The WFP has also helped repair irrigation canals, and that's leading to thousands of hectares of farmland that are then being able to be used for food. One of the main challenges is, of course, dealing with the Assad regime, and I'm sure Calvin can get into that later in the podcast. Absolutely. So with that, I'd like to turn to Calvin and pick up from this wonderful groundwork that Zoe has laid out for us about the challenges that are faced because of this river, because of climate change, and pick up on how the conflict itself has affected this problem. So throughout the Syrian civil war, we've seen Turkey and the Assad regime and also various actors in Syria kind of come to heads on a variety of subjects, including the U.S.-supported Syrian Democratic Forces, which, of course, Turkey considers to be a terrorist organization. How, in your eyes, Calvin, have you seen water been used throughout this war to pursue political and security goals? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And I think before I even get started, I think Zoe did a great job of talking about just how climate change specifically is. It's something that we focus on in the piece, but really it's something that's basically being layered on top of all of these other pre-existing challenges, the lack of water sharing agreements that date back you know, all the way to the 60s, the increased construction of dams. And then, of course, one of the biggest things in the past 10 years being Syrian civil war and the crisis that that's posed for access to drinking water and water for irrigation in northeast Syria and really all of Syria. So when we talk about sort of how water has been used during the Syrian conflict, I would say, again, it's helpful to take the historical lens here and realize that a lot of this stuff predates the conflict, particularly with the constructions of dams. And certainly Kurdish groups, even within Turkey, have felt since the early 2000s that Turkey's dam construction, although it serves real purposes in terms of hydroelectric generation and also in terms of irrigation, that it's also being used to some extent for political purposes to strategically displace Kurdish residents in southeast Turkey, where they predominantly live. And also in some cases, such as in the case of the Hassan Cave historical site, to even flood areas that have, you know, historic and cultural significance for Kurds. So some of this actually predates the war. But in terms of the war itself and the conflict itself and how that's affected things, obviously there's the first order effects of just the, the war itself having been enormously destructive and enormously violent, which means that it's destroyed an enormous amount of the irrigation resources, the freshwater pumping resources that farmers rely on for water. So it means that, you know, as you're talking about climate change and drought and how these access to water has already been declining and strained for Syrian farmers, you're then layering on top of it that the tools that they relied on, even in that context, have been destroyed and that for the most part, reconstruction really hasn't happened. 
In terms of deliberate use of water for or restricting access to water for political purposes, I would say that that really intensified in 2019. So when Turkey launched its Peace Spring Offensive into northeast Syria, one of the sort of effects that was overlooked at the time but has kind of gradually had really magnified effects was the fact that Turkish militias took over the Aluk water station in northeast Syria which is a water station that hundreds of thousands, if not as many as a million Syrians in northeast Syria rely on for access to fresh drinking water. Um, and now there's been kind of going back and forth and areas outside of Turkish control feel that the water, I mean, it's just factually accurate to say that the water hasn't been sort of dispersed at nearly the levels it was when Turkey took that station over. And there's been a lot of back and forth over what exactly the causes for that are. But certainly one of the causes is the militias, the Turkish-backed militias that took that station over, really haven't made getting it up to speed and getting it dispersing water to areas outside of their control a top priority. So that's really kind of exacerbated the situation in northeast Syria. And I think it's fair to say that on some level, part of the goal or the incentive structure that Turkey faces there is that restricting water access puts more pressure on the Syrian Democratic Forces who, as you mentioned, Turkey feels are a terrorist organization. And so their perception is that putting pressure on them, straining their resources, destabilizing the area that they hold is on some level beneficial because it degrades someone that they view as an enemy. Absolutely. I want to jump to something that Zoe mentioned and is a key point of this piece, which is the importance of bringing these governments together to negotiate, to make water a key priority for negotiations. So something that's been happening throughout the Middle East is a lot of countries are starting to look towards the Syrian regime and normalization. And specifically in the context of Syria and Turkey, we've seen some high profile meetings. We've seen Turkey start to look towards normalization, yet both sides are facing major constraints. The Assad regime wants Turkey to leave the areas that Turkish forces and Turkish proxies are currently in in northern Syria. And so, Calvin, I'm wondering, has the Euphrates River and water issues been included in these negotiations? And if not, why not? It's a really important question. So I think what we can say for sure is that Syrian officials, both SDF officials, so officials in the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are a U.S. ally that holds the territory in northeast Syria, but also Syrian officials in Damascus have raised the issue of water sharing repeatedly over the past few years. And they definitely feel very strongly that Turkey is not abiding by its previous agreements in terms of allowing sufficient water in the Euphrates to reach Syria. So it's something that they definitely view as a grievance and would definitely like to raise with Turkey. Whether or not it's actually come up specifically in negotiations is a lot less clear. I think it's fair to say that there's kind of higher order questions that both sides are more interested in discussing right now or that they both see as being more important in the short term. I'd say that probably the two biggest ones there are the question of refugee return and what's going to happen to the 3.5, potentially 4 million Syrians that are currently living in Turkey as refugees and when or how they'll go home. And so that's sort of the question number one. And then question number two is the future of the Turkish occupation of northern Syria, which Syria views as obviously unlawful. And as of March, Bashar al-Assad's position is that he doesn't have anything to talk about directly with Erdogan until that occupation ends. So those are kind of the two high order questions. What I would say is that water kind of dovetails with them or intersects with them in certain ways. So specifically on the question of refugee return, the big issue is that refugees can't go home until it's politically safe for them to do so, but also until it's safe from a humanitarian perspective, that there needs to be some level of stability, there needs to be livelihoods, there needs to be some level of jobs and economic prosperity in Syria before refugees are going to be willing to entertain the idea of going home. And water sharing has a really direct effect on that because the lack of access to water in the northeast Syria has been really devastating to the economy there. As we've covered, it's destabilized that area. 
and it's impoverished it and it's made it harder for people to go back there. So it definitely intersects with these sort of higher order questions that both sides are talking about. But as of right now, it's hard to say whether or not anything has been discussed directly because sort of what's happened has mostly been behind closed doors. Absolutely. And so I want to kind of end on looking towards the U.S. and its role in Syria, specifically with water. While the focus is on water in the piece, you do mention the need for the U.S. to look towards alternative partners in Syria to help with aid delivery due to the widespread corruption plaguing the Assad regime. This is something we've talked about largely on the Contours podcast, again, with my colleague Caroline Rose in regards to Captagon production and also general corruption in regards to aid. Calvin, in the piece, you mentioned that the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, AANES, is an option here. And I'm wondering, of course, this is an organization that, again, the Turkish government considers to be affiliated with a terrorist group. Wouldn't this option turning towards this group and other allies make it more difficult for the U.S. to collaborate with Turkey on water issues? Obviously, the U.S. is kind of in a hard position here, managing all of the different aspects related to the conflict, including the humanitarian sector, political affiliation with the Assad regime, all of these different factors. And I'm wondering how you see the U.S. kind of managing these different levers in regards to water. It's a huge challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges when it comes to meeting the humanitarian and reconstruction needs in Syria as a result of the war, not even just in the context of water sharing, but just more generally, is the issue that aid that's delivered through the Assad regime oftentimes doesn't reach its intended targets. It's oftentimes sold off for political purposes. It's used as a tool of coercion for areas outside of the regime's control. So it's a huge challenge. And then on top of that, the areas that are most directly affected by water shortages tend to be in the Northeast just because of the way that the Brady's River flows and because of where the most fertile agricultural territory is. And those areas are predominantly held by the Syrian Democratic Forces and the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, which the U.S. works with there. So it just winds up for a variety of reasons not being super feasible to lean on the Assad regime as the primary implementer to mitigate these challenges. And as a result, I think any you know meaningful solution or meaningful effort to kind of mitigate the water sharing challenges in northeast Syria, especially, kind of has to be routed through the autonomous administration on some level. But yeah, you're absolutely right that from Turkey's perspective, this is a terrorist group and they take any kind of issue with U.S. collaboration and definitely any type of collaboration that is seen as state building in any way. So things that are trying to build the capacity of the autonomous administration in a long term sense is something that they take a huge issue with. As for how the U.S. can mitigate that, I think, you know, Turkey has competing priorities in Syria. On the one hand, they want to see the autonomous administration degraded and potentially ultimately destroyed. But on the other hand, as I talked about earlier, they also want to see stability in northeast Syria, stability in Syria generally maintained because they're very nervous about new refugee flows and they're very eager to repatriate Syrian refugees that are already in Turkey. So, you know, U.S. efforts to mitigate this challenge in Syria are actually you know, they're very beneficial to Turkey in some level because they actually make those priorities easier for Turkey. So what I would just say is that I think that from the U.S. perspective, from a messaging perspective, emphasizing that this is something that's being done for the benefit of everyone involved, Turkey does derive some benefits from this, I think is is really important to be proactive about that. And I would just say that, you know, certainly working with the autonomous administration in this capacity might be controversial, but it's quite a bit less controversial than what the U.S. already does when it comes to funding and arming and training the actual military forces, the SDF. And the fact that the U.S. has been able to do that for about eight years now without any complete rupture of relations with Turkey and that they've been able to manage that challenge, I think, suggests that cooperation on water sharing specifically should be you know, not too tall of an order, even if there are these political challenges involved. 
And also, it seems possible that the U.S. can kind of lean on the fact that Turkey seems to want to show its diplomatic prowess more in the region and globally, as we've seen with its involvement in the Black Sea Grain Initiative as a key aspect of that deal. Zoe, would you like to add anything to Calvin's answer? Yeah, Carolyn, you know, just to echo what you were saying, when Eugene and I were last on the podcast together, we talked about how the Black Sea Grain Initiative really demonstrated to Erdogan the advantages of leading diplomatic initiatives in the region, specifically over waterways. So I think that there is a potential opportunity here for U.S. diplomats to help Turkey see a similar diplomatic and leadership opportunity in helping to manage this emerging water crisis. Absolutely. And with that, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on the podcast today. This has been a wonderful discussion. I've really enjoyed diving into the Syrian crisis, specifically through the context of water diplomacy and these very, very important rivers. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Contours. You can make sure to subscribe to the podcast on major streaming platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also check out further analysis into geopolitics and U.S. foreign policy at www.newlinesinstitute.org. All the best.